It's the Airhead 247 Podcast. The Airhead 247 Podcast, powered by Wedgetail Ignition Systems, state of the art ignition for your 247 Airhead. Proudly made in Australia by motorcyclists who love their BMWs. By the BMW Motorcycle Owners of America, who invite you to ride inspired. And Boxer2Valve.com, the premium supplier for all your airhead replacement parts. Now, let's get this thing fired up. Greetings again, everybody. Over the next two episodes, we're going to take you back in time to Vancouver, Canada, in the early and mid-1970s through the eyes of one Pokey Parmage. Pokey worked at Philip Funnel Motorcycles in Vancouver, British Columbia, when the Slash 5 and Slash 6 series bikes were first being introduced. Pokey has a suitcase full of stories and experiences to share from that time. We'll also be joined by William Plam from Boxer 2 Valve this week for another edition of Tech Talk. This week, we discuss best practices when buying a used 247 Airhead. Before we dig in, though, this reminder, we're about halfway to our goal of 200 new members in our BMW MOA promotion. The MOA is offering a free digital one-year membership for all of our listeners. It's very easy to register. And again, did I mention it's free? So please take advantage of this as a way to help support what we do here. If you can hear this message, you're eligible for the offer. So this is good for all citizens of planet Earth no matter your location. Go to 247.bmwmoa.org. Use the code AIRHEADS247 to join. We've got that link and code noted in all the description sections of our podcast, so if you need to check it out again, that's where it is. We're committed to bringing you this program free of charge, no membership fees, subscriptions, paywalls. So again, please consider supporting our sponsors, who in turn help bring you this program. I will say the MOA puts together a wonderful monthly publication. I've been enjoying the digital version of that for the past few months. So that's just one of the nice benefits you can take advantage of with this promotion. All right, enough of that. We want to say hello to everyone tuning in in the greater Phoenix area in the great state of Arizona. You all were the number one city for listens in the month of February. So well done, everybody out in the desert. Also want to say hello to Lewis in Cape Town, South Africa. He sent a nice note with some photos and regards from his crew of 247 Airhead fans. So cheers, Lewis, to you and all your riding partners in Cape Town. It was great to hear from you. So Pokey Parmage will be with us for the next two episodes. I should say if you're on Adventure Rider, he's a regular contributor there in the Airhead section under his first name, Pokey, so he's easy to find. In part one today, we'll dig into his early days working at a BMW motorcycle dealer, the introduction and teething issues with the Slash 5 series, and Pokey shares a truly harrowing experience riding a Slash 5 to a tech school in the middle of winter. So, off we go. It's Pokey Parmage on the Airhead 247 Podcast. Uh, We're on the line with Pokey Parmage. Uh, at an undisclosed location somewhere in Colorado. And Pokey, thanks uh, for taking some time to visit with us today. 
one of the reasons I wanted to talk with you is you've got, a, first of all, a long history uh, with BMW motorcycles. And originally, uh, as I mentioned, you're now living uh, in Colorado, but uh, you're a native of Canada and started out uh, your career in motorcycle mechanics at a very early age uh, at a BMW dealer in Canada. So let's get started out with that. Uh, my first question is, and let me just sort of preface it this way, what is or what was your introduction basically to motorcycles as a youth? I, I know for me, it was basically everybody except me had a motorcycle when I was a kid. So that uh, the longing and it just kept growing and growing until I was old enough to buy one. Uh, what what was the bug that bit you as a as a youngster? Well, the bug that originally bit me was my my brother, my older brother. He would use me. Um, he would ride me on his uh, BSA down to the local pool pool hall, and he would use me to attract girls. <laughs> that's, because that's... I was yeah, I was like three years old, and uh, the girls would all gather around because I had this blonde curly hair. And the girls would ooh and ah, and of course, uh, would eventually, uh, he'd ask one of them out. <laughs> and this would happen with some frequency. So, uh, yeah, that's that's my introduction. And uh, from there, um, he used to take me as well, I guess I was his favorite kid, or, or I don't know what, but he would take me down to the local uh, motorcycle shop where he knew the fellas, and this was in Montreal. And... Um, while he was talking with the uh, owners or workers there, I would go out and wander out in the boneyard behind the shop where I would do things like play in the sidecars and, and, and stuff like that. So that's how it started. Okay. <laughs> and from there, it went to um, when I was however, however age. Uh, in 1965, I was uh, on a bowling team as a kid, and uh, they were offering um, – a, a, a uh, opportunity to put put tickets in for a brand new Honda C110, and by golly, if I didn't win one of them! Wow! And that was that was delivered from Kane's Honda in uh, in Calgary. So uh, that's again, and that sat in my bedroom for, I guess, a few years before I was able to ride it, uh, and then it just sort of snowballed from there. <laughs> Let me let me go back and follow up on a few things you mentioned there. So you mentioned your brother had a BSA. Do you remember the the model and and color? Oh, it was it was yellow and silver. It was a four forty one Victor. And you said Montreal. So um, you sort of date stamped that uh, by mentioning the I guess mid to early sixties. My I've, I've been to Montreal just once, sort of passing through. Um, was and today I think of Montreal as a rather sort of progressive international uh, city. Uh, was it like that growing up as well? Well, I can't tell you. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I was born in Montreal, um, and I only lived in Montreal until I was about, I guess, four, something like that. And uh, then we moved to uh, St. John, New Brunswick, which we only stayed there for a couple of years. And then we uh, moved all the way across the country to Calgary, Alberta. Okay, so those of us uh, 
who are geographically challenged. That is <laughs> that that is in. Uh, the, if I'm recalling, I hope I don't sound like an idiot. I'm going to say that's in the western part of uh, Canada, right? No. No. Okay. Uh, okay. From Montreal, Montreal is Quebec. Um, we moved to, to east. Okay. To, okay. Uh, to St. John, New Brunswick, and that was on the um, Bay of Fundy. We were we were probably less than oh, 100 yards away from the bay. Uh, we had a, a road that went past our house um, that was a dirt road that on the other side of that was the drop-off for the Bay of Fundy. So, yeah, we used to like to watch the boats come in and out and things like that and had a dog there that uh, you didn't dare pet because he got so excited he'd bite you. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> so that's where that went from there. So it sounds <laughs> from, like... Go, from there, go ahead. From there, we moved to uh, Calgary, um, and that's in Alberta. I hope, hopefully, you know where Alberta is. I do now. Um, yes, yes. Yeah. Okay, okay. So that's going west from there. Yes. And then from there, after I got a little older, we moved to British Columbia. Okay. All right. Yes. All right. That that helps a lot. And that, of course, is yes, and uh, British Columbia, the w- north of Seattle, um, and there's obviously just some beautiful country and mountains up there. Um, oh, you bet. Yeah, yeah. It's one place I need to go. I have yet yet to visit. So, uh, it sounds like your brother was a bit of an influence on you, good, bad, or otherwise. Uh, and <laughs> <laughs> is he is he still uh, alive? He's still alive, but I'm afraid we've we've lost touch because of a uh, uh, a situation with my mother. She she started when she was getting older. Um, she was 98, and she started losing her marbles, and um, she invented all these things that never happened. And my brother took them for, for what they what she said they were, and so we've never talked since. No. <laughs> she has she has died since then. Wow. So. Yeah, the family dynamic, right? There you go. Yeah, yeah. All right. Well, so moving on then. Um, how, how did your introduction to BMW motorcycles come about? And I would imagine, uh, that was probably, again, if we're talking, uh, or we're talking maybe late sixties, am I right? So you were probably seeing a lot of slash twos. Is that what started getting your attention BMW wise? Oh yeah. It's, um, I, I got most of my, uh, interest in BMW while I was living in Calgary. Um, and the interest was weird because, um, I'm dyslexic with ADD, and so I didn't do very well in school. So most of the time I was in school, I was looking at hot rod magazines and motorcycle magazines, and the other kids were, oh, yuck, that's a BMW. Look at those cylinders out the side. Ooh, those are terrible. And so I went the opposite direction, and I would say, no, these are great. These are great bikes, knowing nothing at all. And... um you know, I would I would make up these stories about them and things <laughs> just because just because I thought they need some love and I'm going to give it to them. But I never actually never actually got mixed up with BMWs until I moved to British Columbia. And what was the introduction there? The introduction there was um, my summer 
of being uh, 15 years old, uh, riding my motorcycle, of which uh, you're supposed to be 16 when you're when in British Columbia, but in, in Calgary, 14, you could get a license. And so I had a motorcycle that I was riding, and when we moved to, to uh, British Columbia, I was able to ride my motorcycle back to, back and forth to school and, and things like that. And in the in the summer of 1970, um, I was determined to find a, a job at a motorcycle shop. And after going from one shop to another, all the way into Vancouver, um, I stopped and talked to Morris Rodney at Pacific Cycle. And he said, no, we don't need anybody, but you might want to try down the street at Philip Fennell's. So I went down the street at Philip Fennell's, walked in the back door and asked for a job. And he was willing to hire me to... Uh, clean drain buckets and, and things like that for a dollar sixty five an hour. So that's how that started. Okay. And by the end of the summer, um, I was now old enough to quit school, which I did. Um, and he had lost all of his employees because he had a horrid temper and people just wouldn't tolerate it. So I all of a sudden became this uh, 16-year-old kid who uh, was the main mechanic? <laughs> so you say he had, so you say he had a horrible temper. So can you give me a, an example of that? I mean, would it be something little would set him off, or he was just high strung naturally, or how, how did that manifest itself? Well, being being from England and um, some of the things he'd gone through, he'd gone he'd gone around the world three times on the same motorcycle. And uh, he wouldn't put up with shit from anybody. And so if somebody came in to the front of the shop uh, and didn't like what was going on and would, would hold him responsible or whatever, he would grab them by the scruff of the neck and the back of the pants and fling them out of the shop. <laughs> uh, and if the uh, he's, he's just a little guy. I mean, he's barely five foot, but he's built like a uh, bulldog. And um, so in the shop... Uh, he would start arguments with the mechanics. Now, I can't say he was wrong, because the mechanic would say he did something or that, and he wouldn't have. And so Philip would get upset with him, and if he got an argument of him, he would grab the mechanic by the scruff of the neck and fling him out of the shop and fire him. And um, so that's what happened there. And if he got upset about something, you had to watch your head, because he would pick up things and throw them. Across and they would bounce off of the walls. It was pretty. When he got going, it was pretty bad. Was there and a? I, well, let me add. Conversely, was there a more caring, loving, understanding side to him as well, or was it all the gruff exterior that you saw? Oh no, no. If you were, if you were reasonable with him, or or like I guess I I was, everything was a go. He was he was fine. If you didn't try to cheat him, or if you didn't try to uh, uh, pull something on him, he was a great buddy to have. He would go. He would walk through walk through uh, lava for you. Sure, sure, yeah. And sort of set the scene, if you can, paint the the picture in the mind's eye here. Uh, tell me, so what was the name of the shop? Was it just his name, and was it on sort of a busy street? What kind of building was it in? A store storefront? Sort of just describe the the atmosphere there. Okay, well, his name was Philip Fennell, and the name of the company was Philip Fennell Motorcycles. 
because he started off selling whatever he could to stay in business. And we eventually became um, Fennell BMW. And it was on a storefront on East Hastings Street in Vancouver in the Tenderloin area. Mm -hmm. Uh, The address was 541 East Hastings Street. And it started off as one little tiny shop. And uh, as we started to get busier and busier, we also rented the uh, the build the um, shop next door and broke down the wall in between the two, and then uh, built a uh, a big um, cinder block shop in the back. So yeah, it, it was eventually getting bigger and bigger, and we uh, ended up to the point where we were actually stocking more parts uh, than the BMW distributor of the time. Hmm. And people from uh, other shops from around the country would call us for parts, knowing that we'd have them. And on Saturdays, when Phil would be all fired up selling selling a bike or whatever, people would come in and, and ask, well, where can I get this part? Or where can I get that part? Or can I expect to have parts problems? And Philip would put um, slam a $5 bill down on the table and say, you put $5 with that and ask me for any part off this motorcycle, and if, you, if we don't have it, you can take the money. Wow. <laughs> wow. And so what... Nobody and, ever got it. <laughs> that's pretty amazing. Did And so you said it was the Tenderloin District. So what uh, was that kind of like a bustling neighborhood with, you know, restaurants and shops and, and things? Was it a busy part of town? Yes, it was a very busy t- part of town, with uh, mostly with um, uh, Chinese immigrants. Mm. Uh, it was a, it was a, a big area for uh, for Chinese folks, and you know their their grocery stores and things of that nature. But it was also a great place to hire prostitutes and buy drugs. <laughs> but um, I, I'm I, I, I'm very happy to say I never took advantage of either one. Okay, fair enough. I, I wasn't going to ask if you had, but. Uh, th- th- <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for clarifying that for everybody. Well, yeah, that that sounds like uh, a, an interesting, bustling uh, place to as a teenager uh, just to be. Let alone working at a motorcycle shop. Uh, and so, uh, again, I'm assuming this was. Uh, so, if we're talking pre 1970, uh, was he carrying other things besides uh, slash two the slash two line? Was it a multi dealer? Uh, uh, or multi-bike dealer? Yeah, we uh, we started off, well, now I'm saying we, he. but uh, I actually mean the he. Yeah. Um, I, I started working there in 1970, but before that, uh, he had a number of, when I started working there, he had a number of models left over from being a Yamaha dealer and carried, uh, carried also BSA. Um, we had a, there, before that, there was Triumph, uh, but I think mostly BSA and Yamaha were were the two lines that uh, he made his bread and butter from. Yeah, and so all right. So if you started in 1970, that that obviously you were there for the introduction of the Slash Five series. So uh, tell me, sort of, what was it like being involved with that at the time as a new as the new BMW motorcycle? That had to have been kind of exciting. It was, except for the fact that there was a lot of uh, teasing problems, uh, yeah. especially with carburation. Tell me about that. Uh, okay, well, the, the carburetors that the early bikes had um, were, uh, again, uh, CVs, particularly the uh, the R75-5, 
and the tops would leak, and so the slides would stick. And um, also the bob weights on the um, advance units were too big, and so the the bike would slow down to an idle and take quite a little bit of time to do so. So we had to do things like uh, shorten the bob weights and um, seal carburetor tops. We we claimed a number of carburetor tops on warranty, uh, and you know things like uh, seating the the butterfly valves. And such that that was the main thing was the carburetors, hmm. uh, and then on the on the R50 R60 model, um, this was when they first came out. They didn't have the um, accelerator pumps in the carburetor, and uh, there was all kinds of trouble with those. So in the following year, 1971, and actually in late 1970, they corrected some of those problems. So, so that's, uh, well, let me ask you then, especially with those carburetor issues. So what was, and the, uh, let me ask, first ask the question and then get into the specific there. So you were dealing, the importer uh, and distributor was was not uh, either Flanders or Butler and Smith. I guess it was a specific Canadian importer. Yeah, the uh, we used to get parts from uh, Earl Flanders. Okay. Because... Um, Philip knew Earl pretty well, and we'd get parts from them. But the actual uh, place where we got most of our BMW parts from was BMW Canada, which was uh, a, a portion of Marquette Marketing run by Ilsa Hilger. And we we and they were very very good to work with. That's good to know. Um, yeah, uh, we would get parts. Uh, we would actually get. Um, uh, companies from like the Seattle area or stuff like that because of parts they couldn't get from Butler and Smith. Um, they would call us and we'd, we'd get the parts no problem at all. Um, and also the uh, BMW distributor in Canada was willing to uh, get things that nobody else would get. Like for instance, um, I was curious about the police stickers on the side of the uh, BMWs. Mm. So I, just for fun, I ordered a couple of them, and by golly, they came within a couple of weeks. <laughs> yeah, why not, you know? We've teamed up with the BMW Motorcycle Owners of America to offer a special membership deal for our listeners. Now, before you think, wait a second, Darren, how much is this going to cost? Let's just stop right here and say... It's free. This is a complimentary one-year digital membership for Airhead 247 podcast listeners. The MOA has a goal of adding 200 new members over the next several months. That's a lot, but I think they can reach that goal with our help. By supporting the MOA with this offer, you're also supporting this program. And let's say this again, it is free of charge. Visit 247.com bmwmoa.org and complete the online form using the activation code airhead247. That's easy to remember. You'll receive your free one-year digital membership, and that will give our program credit for referring you. Or go to the description section of this podcast. We've got a direct link right there. Membership in the MOA offers discounts at hotels, a monthly magazine, great deals on roadside assistant programs, plus a fantastic network of BMW owners that share your passion. 
All this, plus you're supporting our efforts here with the podcast, bringing you unique insight into the world of the 247 Airhead. That website, once again, for your free one-year digital membership, 247.bmwmoa.org. Use the code AIRHEAD247. Thank you very much for your support. Thanks again to the BMW MOA for their support. Now back to our chat with Pokey Parmage. <laughs> That's interesting. So, all right. So you were dealing with uh, the Canadian uh, importer and distributor. So tell me yep. about, and especially with the, you mentioned the teething early uh, problems there with the carburetor. So were you in contact with the distributor who then would contact BMW? What was the protocol and process for sort of maybe service bulletins and repairs? Well, was there good communication or were you kind of left on your own of your own devices to figure out those problems uh, and solutions? Well, we would do the usual thing of, of calling them up and saying, look, we're, we're having this problem and it seems to be with all the bikes. Um, can you help us out with this or that? And the answer, the answer sometimes would be something like, there's no problem. Yeah, we've never run into that. They, <laughs> let me interrupt and say, you know, I've talked uh, in this series. We've I've spoke with a lot of folks who were involved uh, with either you know BMW North America or you know Butler and Smith, or but mostly when they it, it would make it back to BMW, ninety nine percent of the people say that was the response: is there is no problem. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Well, it's like in, um, I can give you an example of 1972, which was a bad year for transmissions. Um, we would get new bikes and we'd sell, we would sell more bikes than anybody in Canada. Uh, so we were the, always the one to look at if there was a problem. And in 1972, um, the transmissions in BMW were overshimmed by one millimeter on the uh, counter shaft. And so the uh, bearings wouldn't tolerate it. And we'd have people coming in with these really terrible sounding transmissions. I bet. And we'd pull them apart. And we would just find that uh, it was overshimmed by exactly one millimeter. Wow. So the, tolerance, we was, so the tolerance was too tight. Oh, way too tight. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So we were the ones telling BMW what the problem was and uh, how to correct it. So, yeah. Other than that, we were, uh, you know, left to our own devices. And if we had a warranty claim, it was very rarely ever questioned. Huh, interesting. Now, do you recall BMW, and I've just learned this here recently uh, throughout the course of these interviews, so I'm not speaking from any breadth of knowledge or experience here, but uh, it was, uh, didn't BMW outsource kind of the transmissions to a company, what was it, Gertreg or something like that. So uh, were the, do you know if the transmissions were being provided to BMW already completed and, and assembled and that the problem was with the manufacturer or was it something in that case with the overshimming that was done in the factory or, or do you even know? No, I'm afraid it was never, that was never made clear. I see. Um, I do know that uh, BMW makes most of their stuff, but yes, uh, they do. Uh, have subcontractors where they get things like transmissions mm -hmm. or rear drives or or that kind of thing. Yeah, they they definitely do that. But uh, when I was when I was 
there in uh, 74, you could watch a whole motor being made on the line. So it's, uh, you know, that was pretty cool. But, you know, they did, just like any manufacturer. Interesting, uh, yeah. Contract for things like transmissions. Okay, so early on was initial run. You had some carburetor issues. Later in 72, you had some transmission issues. I know uh, a couple folks uh, I visited uh, with mentioned that the early Slash 5 bikes weren't fused uh, and had some problems with wiring harnesses just completely going up in smoke uh, if you'd have uh, some kind of accident or, uh, you know, some wires would get uh, ch chafed or something like that. Um, and, uh, you know, of course, it was a newer, a new model. Uh, there's going to be some teething uh, issues there. Uh, overall, though, how were the bikes uh, received by yourself and, and customers uh, with the new Slash 5 series then? Oh, yeah, it was received really well. Um, all of the bikes that left our company, all of the bikes that left that were sold by Philip Fennell Motorcycles or the ones that came in for service, we talked them into it, um, we fused we put on yep. uh, fuses on the right at the battery so that that wouldn't be a problem. So was but it, and tell me about, so what, and uh, just physically sort of what was it, what were you, what was the little fuse box you were buying on your own? Was it a BMW part? How how were you manifesting that? No, that was just a, an accessory part that you get from a place like uh, Nick and Trade Company or something like that. It was just a, a little, little inline fuse that uh, you just cut the wire and uh, solder in place. And were they those little bullet fuses that were so that we know now uh, with the uh, uh, slash five and six series that we see? No, it was the regular the regular fuses, the regular automotive fuses. Okay, gotcha, line. gotcha. All right. Well, and with the with folks saying that that it was so easy to burn up a harness, um, it, it was easy. Yeah. The uh, the biggest problem, or pretty much what I found was the only problem, was when somebody would take the headlight off and unplug the wires. Mm. They wouldn't realize that uh, the ground goes on a specific one and the, uh, mm -hmm. the power for the lights goes on a specific one. And they would often get them reversed and blow fuse after fuse after fuse until they got so frustrated that they would put um, uh, aluminum paper over top of... Uh, or tinfoil over top of the fuse, and all of a sudden, smoke would be pouring out of the headlight. <laughs> Boy, I have to say, you know, it's easy to say in hindsight, but, you know, the Slash 5 series was a big uh, to-do uh, for BMW, you know, brought them in at the time, quote-unquote, to the modern uh, motorcycle and engineering world. It's it, it Doesn't it seem hard to fathom that they didn't even think for a minute they would need a couple fuses in there? Oh, no, you have to remember, this is BMW. We are German. We know best. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, what was the right? Uh, was there ever a rationale given why they wouldn't have been no. needed? Okay. No, no. But you, as, you, as you know, in 1972, with the introduction of the 72 model, uh, fuses were put in the headlight. Exactly. But the only thing that they protected was basically the headlight. The headlight, and uh, if I'm remembering right, the power to the turn signals, and that is it. Hmm. Interesting. So even though they had the fuses in the headlight, we continued 
putting an inline fuse right at the battery. Tell me a little bit about the sort of motorcycle culture uh, in that area uh, and that time. And I know you mentioned the bike, the, the slash fives were received well. Um, who were typically who were customers uh, for the for a new slash five back then? Well, I can I can give you a couple of examples. Yeah, yeah. Uh, one one fellow, um, and this this wasn't totally uncommon, but it, it shocked me. Uh, one fellow came in. Um, of course, being in Vancouver, we're right on the coast, right right where the fishing industry is. And he would, he came walking in, looked a filthy mess, hair all mess, everything. And he just said, he just walked in, smelled it horribly like fish. <laughs> and he just walked in, pointed at a silver bike and said, I want that one. Put his hand in his pocket and plopped down, uh, what was it, $3,000. Yeah. <laughs> and, of course, we had to say, well, that's not serviced yet. You'll have to come back. And he said, well... I'm going out on a boat again tomorrow. He says I'll be back. I'll be back on Saturday to pick it up. Wow! <laughs> and that was that was one of the customers. The uh, other customers are the ones that Philip would get all excited about uh, world touring. Uh, he would tell about his his bike called. Um, um, oh, there it just slipped out of my mind. <laughs> but he had a he had a bike with over three hundred uh, four thousand miles on it. And that he would uh, that he had toured the uh, toured the world three times on with his with his wife Hillary. Now was that a slash two uh, that he had? That was a slash two. That yeah. was a 1959 uh, R50. Okay. And what he would do is he would give those examples, and he would get all excited, and and in turn cause some excitement in the person, and they would buy a bike uh, with the intention of world touring. But very few did. It, they they would tour places like Mexico. Alaska and all across Canada and often right down to right down to the tip of South America but uh, it was it was really rare to actually run into one of them who had toured the world yeah yeah well let, let me just say back up there I mean three thousand dollars at that time was a lot of money for a motorcycle I mean that was probably close to uh, maybe almost double uh or at least a, a quarter more than what you would pay for a comparable uh you know maybe japanese bike i, I don't know what triumphs were costing back then but uh bmw is a premium brand uh by my account uh, always sort of has been especially back then that's an interesting story though about the fishermen um you know that's that's an industry where gosh you know that how hard they work you know endless hours sometimes months on end but the pay is really good uh and they don't have oh, yeah. any and they don't have anywhere to spend it so yeah that's not surprising <laughs> a guy comes in with a pocket full of cash smelling like a, a a fish hatchery or whatever and says i'll take the silver one so what do you remember what he got did he get it was it a 750 or do you do you recall yes he got a 750 yeah um, r75 slash five now if you i don't remember the prices really well so that was a little while ago. Uh, but I can tell you that in 1971, you could buy a BMW R50-5 basic, which means it didn't have an electric starter, didn't have turn signals, didn't have a toolkit for 1995. Wow. Okay. 
That's interesting to think that some that some of those were options even at the time. Oh yeah, we only sold we only sold two or three of them, but we did sell a few that uh, were basic models. Interesting, and so you know that and you know Vancouver, British Columbia. Um, that's you know nowadays. I'm, this may be a gross mischaracterization on my part. I think of that as a rather affluent area. Uh, was it then uh, as well? Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, most of our customers um, would come from, like, North Vancouver or, or, or places like that. We did have a number of ordinary people that uh, bought bikes, but a number of our customers were uh, pretty well-to-do Um Two of the customers were uh, Morris Embra and Ken Juvenville, who were mixed up in the uh, very, very early um, uh, movie theater scene. Hmm. And, yeah, they, bu- they bought a bike together. Uh, it was a, uh, an R75, and they had me put a, uh, uh, a, a sidecar on it for them. Oh, interesting. The name of the sidecar was Cossack. <laughs> it's funny the details you remember. Yeah, other details gonna, yeah right. That's just that's great. So they bought a bike together, and of course, you know, if it's for two of them, I guess they had to have a sidecar. Yep, there you go. Right. Um, <laughs> I, I want to uh, dig into a little bit more about. Uh, you, there's you've got a great story about going to service school, but you know, since we're s- sort of on the topic of bikes in that era, so. Uh, were you there uh, for the introduction of the R90S as well? Oh, absolutely. So, in 1970, yeah. 1974, you could buy a brand new R90S for $4,000, and that was the same price as a VW thing. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> what would, did you, let me ask you, did you guys, what, what was the sort of, marketing promotion buildup if any for the r90s for a dealer like you guys uh where you were located were you getting advanced sort of here's what's coming down the pipeline here's how you should sell this and market it to your customers were they sending you know pre-made ads where you would you know put in the dealer name and address and and phone number uh, how was that handled, especially with the R90S? Because that was a, you know, that was a, uh, as we all know, uh, a landmark bike for them that uh, they, you know, put put some marketing behind it. How how was all that handled uh, uh, from your end? The only handling we got was what we did on our own. Huh. We never got uh, any suggestions from BMW of how to sell them. We never got. All we got was. Um, brochures, big color brochures, Mm -hmm. and all it had on the back of it was a blank spot that we would rubber stamp our name on and and then put them in a rack. But no, there was no, there was no, no anything for advertising of that. We had to uh, take care of it ourselves. Interesting. Yeah. I've got, I think I have one of those color brochures with a, with the dealer stamp on the back, you know, kind of in my little pile of inferior or whatever, you know, things I've collected over the years. What was um, what was your reaction when you when you saw the 90s for the first time? Well, I was I was quite amazed by it, just like everybody. Mm-hmm. Um, but as time went by, I found that if you took a a my favorite bike, which was an R seventy five slash six at the time, 
um, if you took that out and wrote it properly, that you could keep up with and possibly even beat an R90S. So, <laughs> so I stuck with my favorite, which was an R75, and uh, I could make it really dance. Yeah, yeah, I bet. Well, I, I can imagine so. And you mentioned sort of uh, one thing I did want to follow up there on uh, with the fisherman that came in. So he comes in, he wants, he puts down his money, give me a bike. You say, hey, come back tomorrow. We'll have it ready for you. So what uh, what was involved in getting a bike, uh, you know, serviced and, and ready for a customer back then? You know, obviously, you've uncrated it. Uh, you put air in the tires, you know, that take me, I guess, from the bike shows up in a crate uh, to the time the uh, customer drives off in it, sort of what was entailed in getting it ready. Okay, what we did was, if you wanted to go from, from the crate, would be, of course, uh, we had a chainsaw that we used to get it out of the crate. <laughs> oh, and um, the, the bike was wired into the crate with this really heavy uh, steel wire. Huh. Um, this was before they used any straps. Right, right. And um, we'd, we'd have to go out there and uh, jack it up underneath so we could put on the front wheel. Uh, you tighten up, you move the handlebars, tighten those into place. You'd have to uh, uh, untuck the mirrors from behind the, uh, the throttle and choke cable and then um, push the bike out. And then after the, after the bike was out, we'd put on the mirrors, uh, give it a wash, wax it, and put it in the showroom just like it was. Um, that way, if anybody decided to break in and steal one, it, it, they wouldn't be able to ride it away. So... After that, when somebody ordered one or bought bought one, mm-hmm. we'd have to do things like uh, take out the battery, fill the battery, um, again, check the tires, mm-hmm. uh, fill up the engine oil. And um, at that point, it was almost ready to go. We'd just top it up with gas and fire it up and uh, take it around the block. And if they, if they were somebody who uh, was really going to be riding a ways or something like that, one of us would take it home for the weekend and put about three or 400 miles on it and then uh, then give it to them. Yeah, just to sort of, you know, work out any kinks, make sure this, that, and the other's working and no, no sort of surprises. There you go. Yeah, so, so basically those bikes arrived from the factory, valve clearance is set, timing was set. Uh, no, and you say it, it did it come with a, just a dry battery then, and it, you had to fill it up. Yes, yes, yeah. it came with a uh, regular old Varta battery that we would have to fill. All right, well, that seems like a pretty. But the bikes were, the bikes were ready to go. I yeah. mean, uh, we we didn't have to do anything to them. Um, like I said, you put in the, you fill up the battery, you fill up the gas tank, and. Down the road you go. Yeah, I mean, that sounds like a pretty low impedance process, uh, all things considered. And then what was, if you can recall, I'm curious, as a dealer, uh, you know, cost versus, you know, what you end up selling the bike for. I mean, do you remember what, uh, you know, Philip was uh, clearing on, on a new bike sale, roughly? What was the profit margin for a dealer like him back then? I cannot answer that. Yeah. I never got involved in that portion of the business. I mean, I would imagine... All, all of my business was in the back. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I would imagine... Okay, so, uh, wh- for example, let's say... So, the you said the uh, the bare bones slash, uh, slash five, uh, or the R50 slash five sold for two grand. 
mm-hmm. you know, tax and title and stuff like that. So, I mean, I, gosh, I would think a dealer profit on that back in the day, I don't know, two or three hundred dollars. Is I don't I don't know. Yeah, I don't think I don't think the margin was all that great. Yeah, yeah. I first became a regular customer with Boxer 2 Valve a few years ago when refreshing an R90S. William and Edward Plam's video repair series, well, that was a go-to reference. It made that job and repair session much easier and really an enjoyable process. Boxer 2 Valve carries only the highest quality parts, mainly manufactured by OEM suppliers, so the fit is perfect and the repair, well, it's done just one time. Fitment and applications for all parts are clearly listed. To quickly find what you need, you simply enter your year and model of your bike, and you'll see only the parts that fit. Shipping, that's always fast, with most orders going out that day at 2 p.m., and shipping is available to all parts of the globe. Boxer 2 Valve carries a wide variety of premium special tools and maintenance items, many of those unique to their catalog. William and Edward and the team at Boxer 2 Valve are Airhead fans, and as they say, with a passion for simpler times and uncomplicated machines. Check them out for all your parts needs, Boxer2Valve.com. That's the number two, Boxer2Valve.com. Time for another edition of Tech Talk with William Plam from Boxer 2 Valve. Our topic this week what to look for when buying a used 247 Airhead. We're on the phone with William Plam again. And William, our topic today is buying a used Airhead 247. Um, Let me just ask you this. Generally speaking, how many bikes do you think you've bought over the years? Oh, boy. (laughs) Um, Like used bikes? Yeah. uh, Yeah. yeah, I mean, definitely more than 50. Okay. And and somewhere between, yeah, something way, way north of 50, definitely. More than 50, less than 100. Yeah, I'd say so. So <clears throat> I'm curious, from your perspective, when you're buying a bike from an unknown owner, I mean, a lot of, I would imagine a lot of times somebody like you who's running in circles and stuff, you've got connections, you know, folks who have bikes, not maybe, you know, a history behind them, but not always. And that wasn't always the case. Uh, maybe uh, going back a number of years, generally speaking, what kind of questions do you ask uh, a seller of a bike? So if you saw I had uh, a 77 S for sale and you were interested in it, what kind of stuff would you be asking me? Well, um, obviously, it's good to know what the the history of it is. But honestly, I probably would ask less and look more. Really? Not only, yeah. Um, it depends on the situation. You know, you it's good to know the situation. How how as bike if it was owned since new, that's that's huge. You know, if if, if this was was the original owner or the second owner. And all that sort of thing. So, knowing a little bit about who owned it and what the bike's been through is, of course, what you want to what you want to ask folks, or I would. But beyond that, then I just am looking at different things on the bike uh, to see if it's something I want or not. 
So, yeah. So, you, for instance, you might have a particular model in mind, so you're going to be looking for original parts, um, not a lot of modifications, whatever the scenario is, obviously. Um, if you're exactly. looking... Exactly. I think that the... Yeah. Good. I was going to say, so sometimes if you're sizing one up, especially these days, more likely than not, you're just going to be looking at, you know, a dozen, maybe two dozen, if you're lucky, photos... Uh, on the internet, so let's let's just pick let's just pick a random bike. Let's just say you're looking at an R80 slash seven. I just pulled this out of my hat here, uh, and you're looking at some photos of it online for a potential purchase. What kind of stuff is going to stick out to you as good, and what's going to stick out to you as we got to pump the brakes on this? Okay, I am always looking for the most original bike possible. So if I, so I'm looking for um, any kind of modifications that have been done to it would uh, tip me off to maybe it's not a bike that I would want to want to own. Um, a lot of times uh, modifications are made and I just w- would rather have a, 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 an original bike. That's what I personally am lo- looking for. Sure. But, but in, in general, it really depends upon what the what are you going to do with the bike, right? If, if that's what you have to ask yourself, I think first. And, and uh, I bought bikes that are not exactly stock at all, and but but I'm not interested in them for that reason. You know, we're building some custom project or something like that where we, you know, it's something's been changed, but it doesn't matter because. Of, we're not going to use that part anyway. So I guess you got to start by saying, what are you trying to do? do you, are you going to restore the bike to its original condition? Do you not really care about originality? Or are you going to be making changes where all that can be thrown out the window anyway? I think that's that, that's where we, I begin is thinking about what is the purpose of purchasing this bike. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. You know, one thing I always do, and I hear, I've heard people say this uh, in conducting these interviews uh, over the past year is people will shop the seller, meaning they want to buy a motorcycle from somebody who they think uh, has been a good steward of the motorcycle, who's been on top of maintenance records, who knows what a good BMW airhead is. And I would say that's important, especially for those listening who may be buying their first airhead or just starting to get into the hobby uh, shopping the seller is important. You know, one thing I've always looked for, especially these days when you're buying online, and there's so many places where you can find good prices on bikes. You know, there's a, a number of different formats and websites. We don't need to go all, all over all of those, but some of the things, pictures really do tell a story, William. And if you're seeing a bike that's you know, let's our example here, I, I was saying an R80 slash seven, which is kind of a, a rare bike. Uh, I guess there weren't a whole lot of those, but anyway, so I, let's say I see one on Craigslist for $2,000, you know, it's got 50,000 miles, but in the background, I see a broken baby carriage and a pile of beer cans. I'm probably going to pass on it because (laughs) you know what I'm saying? I mean, a whole picture. Yeah. I mean, a, okay, there's a broken baby carriage and a stack of beer cans. That's a little bit sketchy. B, they didn't think to move the bike out of the way of the broken baby carriage and stack of beer cans. So, I mean, I can you can deduce a lot if you're thinking about it 
from just the photo and the and the setting. Um, that being said, uh, I, you know, I'm wondering in your experience, do do you shop a seller or you at all, or are you still always shopping the bike? Recently, the bikes that we've bought in the past several years, we've been looking for a specific model. Got it. And um, specifically, actually, the R100R is something that we we found we do a lot of cool things with. Oh, okay. So there weren't that really that many of those. Um, you know, it's really really such a neat bike, and it's got the paralever suspension, and this crossbuck wheels, and we're looking for that bike for various reasons, and. Um, so we just need to find. I can't really be that picky. <laughs> <laughs> I understand. <There> are <laughs> so, but I mean that—that's my situation, and it's a diff- it's different than somebody who's looking to, to buy a motorcycle. And I think that what you're saying is um, shopping the looking for the right seller is is absolutely important. And I think that you know going through a channel where there's through BMW enthusiasts, like through the MOA mm-hmm. or something like that, that's probably a really good place to go because you know that these folks know exactly what they have and um, and and can tell you probably about all the places they've been and that 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 is really definitely an important part of the whole the whole process. Yeah, and, and that, that, that uh, my, my scene's a little different. Yeah, that, that's a good point. I I hadn't thought about that when I was putting these questions together and the topic is yeah, you're buying bikes for different reasons. Uh, and and yep. that that does make a lot of sense. You know, one thing I'll say there is that you bring up a good point about uh, uh, an enthusiast forum uh, like the MOA uh, or the other ones out there. Generally speaking, you know, you're gonna. I don't want to paint with too broad of a brush here, but for the most part, BMW owners uh, who've had the bike for a while in that format, who are in a club or something like that, they'll have kept good maintenance records. Uh, they're fastidious about the motorcycle. They stay on top of things. A lot, a lot of BMW owners, especially older guys, have you know engineering backgrounds for some reason. I've just happened to notice that a lot. Uh, so you're dealing with somebody uh, of a little above average intelligence. And I, look, I I went shopping for uh, a Sportster, a Harley Davidson Sportster, a few years ago, and it was a lot. When you're shopping the sellers for a Harley, let's just be honest, it's a lot different. Yeah, I see. Yep. I mean, it is. Now, you don't have to agree or disagree. I'm just telling you, it, it really is. I mean, you see more ham-fisted bikes, uh, especially Sportsters and stuff. And it really, I'm getting off topic, but finding something like that in good, original, well-maintained condition is difficult. Buying an Airhead, yeah, it's difficult. But if you're going through the uh, uh, forums... Uh, or clubs that that makes a big difference. Uh, another thing I want to ask you about. So let's say uh, again, take let's maybe take you your experience out of the picture, and maybe you're just giving somebody advice. Here is if you're going to look at a bike in person, what are just some of the basic check things you can check? You know, without getting out your toolkit and disassembling, taking the rear wheel off and checking the splines draining the transmission, all that kind of stuff. What what kind of things would you be looking for as a, a potential buyer going to visit a bike at somebody's house? So, uh, uh, as we know, most things can can be repaired. Yes. Um, 
But there are a few things that kind of can't be. So the first thing I look at would look at is, has the bike been in a crash? And so it started out by, you know, look at the valve covers. Are they all scratched up? Are they too new looking? Yeah, but been replaced, you know. Uh, look at cooling fins on the uh, on the cylinder he- heads and on the cylinders. Look underneath too, see if you see anything any broken fins. Um, there's a, a pretty easy way to check if the bike's been in a front end uh, accident or collision. Um, there's those uh, gusset plates on the steering head that are welded. There's triangular plates. Those are 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 absolutely flat. They need to be straight. And if the bike ever like T-boned a car or anything like that in its life, then what happens is the, the steering head gets pushed back and those gusset plates will buckle outward. And um and so you can just carry a little like a little six inch uh ruler like a, a stainless steel straight edge with you and lay that on those gussets and see if if that rocks at all if it does there's a chance it might have been in an accident at some time um it does need to be straight those two gusset plates on the steering head also check the the forks you know sit on the bike put the brake on bounce it up and down don't want to feel any stiction in the forks things like that um and the, the, so those are the those are like major component issues I think to start with the rest of it is, you know, you're looking at as cosmetics and here again, like I said before, it's, it really comes down to what are you trying to do with this bike? What are you going to, are you going to make a custom bike out of it or you want to restore it? Or are you just going to ride it? You really care if it's got a, a dent in the tank or whatever, you know, that there's, there's so many variables on yeah. that, but you need to have the bike has to be safe. Also, you know, Consider how much money you want to spend. You know, you know, negotiate a deal. There's maybe going to be some things that you need to do right away that that you need to kind of think about about that. Um, oh, here again, safety issues. Now, on the the tires, uh, always have a date code. Um, so you want to see how old they are. If they're more than ten years old uh, or so, you you really even six, I think, you want to think about uh, replacing them just because of the age. And the date code is, uh, is kind of like a, a stamp that's uh, other, other than, uh, looks other than uh, the rest of the stamps on the, on the side because it uh, looks like there was like a, something that was kind of molded in. It's hard to describe, but it'll have the, the, the year and the week. Of, so it'll have like a, like a um, 14... Uh, seven or something like that would mean that that it was uh, in the fourteenth week of, of t- two thousand and seven, and then you you know oh boy that 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 probably ought to be replaced. So you get a budget <laughs> yeah. for tires, right? <laughs> um, so that's something to look at. And then you know you, the other things you, you'll look at is like the steering, the condition, of the steering and bearings. If you get to ride the bike, you can kind of feel how it rides. But a lot of these things you're going to want to probably replace anyway on a used bike. That's right. Um, as over time, so so it really, in a sense, you, 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 with looking at a bike that old, unless it's been really uh, amazingly taken, taken care of or somebody's already gone through it, there's going to be a lot of repairs you, you're going to need to make. So look at the the important things, safety aspects, and um, stru- structural things. And know that every, pretty much everything else can be repaired if you're willing to do it. Yep, that's a good point. Uh, I'm wise. Good point. I mean, I know I've gone through 
in the past three years, a, 90, a 90S, a 78RS, and now I've got a 77S I'm refreshing. And as a general rule, uh, even, you know, and all these bikes really didn't have, you know, I was comfortable with the purchase on them for a number of reasons, but none of these bikes really had extensive maintenance records. And generally speaking, this is just my experience, you know, I prefer to, re uh, when in doubt, I replace rather than reuse, especially if I'm going through the trouble to tear the bike down and go through it. But just as a general rule for me, I can usually count on spending about $2,000 um, refreshing a, an airhead. That's That's been my, over the past few years, and of course it varies. Sometimes it's more, sometimes it's less. If you got a transmission that needs to be rebuilt, well, bam, you know, add another $1,200 right there. So that's just something to keep in mind uh, when you're thinking about numbers. Does that seem unreasonable? No, I don't think that's unreasonable at all. It, um, that's a, that, that'll make a good dent in it, that's for sure. <laughs> exactly. exactly. Yeah, as long as you're not repainting and, uh, and that kind of stuff. So, all right, William, so we've got, uh, I know we have listeners who were kind of new to the hobby. Uh, they may have one airhead and they're starting to expand their fleet. Um, in your opinion here, uh, and for any uh, buddy, anybody who's looking to expand their fleet or get into the airhead market uh, and buy a new bike, what are some of the years and models that you like? And what are some just... And this doesn't have to be necessarily mechanically speaking. This just might be aesthetically or personally. Where are some of the bikes you would you tend to avoid for whatever reason? Well, you know, they're, they they all have their their uh, attributes. You know, they're, they're, uh, every puppy in the pound is is, is cute. You know, <laughs> okay. but, uh, <laughs> um, if, I think that. That they're they're all yeah the the ones that I that I don't like and and this isn't really saying much because I think they're all kind of cool in their own way yeah but the quirky things are the eighty one through eighty four models because the uh, things that you deal with on a regular basis the side stand the center stand are like ridiculously terrible compared to the other models. Um, and also they had some issues with, uh, the, the valves. Uh, I think there, there was some metallurgy changes in those early eighties and also the SLS system that, um, air pulse system kind of wrecked havoc on the, um, on the exhaust valves. So be prepared with a couple of things, but like this, I said, this, the, the, the stands and that it's something you have to almost live with because there's really no way to, to fix that except adding on a supplemental side stand or something like that. So, those aren't my favorites, but um, the, no reason not to get one. Sure, they're they're really pretty cool. You know, that's that that's like the worst thing I can think of. Uh, I'm just wondering what, what. So uh, you mentioned now you're buying a lot of uh, R100Rs. Um, yeah, I, I, I guess so. You've had a few of those passing through the shop. Um, what's what sort of surprised you, or uh, when when you're buying new? What sort of surprised you bringing some of these bikes in either for a, that has lasted some components and things that you thought, gosh, you know, was bikes really lasted well, or I uh, didn't expect to see this kind of wear and tear on a, on this kind of bike or what, what's caught your eye uh, on those particular models? Those actually have been 
pretty um, pretty good. I was I, I'm surprised. Like we haven't had any major uh, issues. We've got we go we we built a couple of bikes for some customers, and um, we're, we have one that we're 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 going to do. We're have a big project kind of, kind of we in progress. And the components are, are in, in pretty good shape. This is a pretty good bike, actually. Have you noticed any uh, circlip issues on it? Those are, you know, right in the transmission circlip uh, failure wheelhouse. What have you noticed there, if anything? Well, if we take them apart, we put we, we go ahead and just do that. Yeah. If it doesn't have it already. Sure, sure. Um, honestly, you know, we get these bikes and we don't even ride them. We take them apart and we start working on them right away. So yeah, it's neither here nor there. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. I don't have a before and after concept. (laughs) (laughs) I understand. (laughs) I understand. All right. So here's, again, this is going to be observation by me, comment from you. Let me know if I'm, uh, off the mark here. I I mentioned the sort of the $2,000 figure. Uh, if you're buying a bike and you really want to go through it um, and make good improvements, bring every all the maintenance items and everything back up to spec, get it to where you know it's going to be a safe machine, generally speaking, that's about $2,000. Now, a lot of times I'll see in a, in a forum or talking with somebody uh, just on the side or whatever, always the comment, well, gosh, you're sinking all this money into a bike. You know, is it really worth that much? And why, you know, why, you know, do you need to replace the petcock? You know, so it doesn't click on and off. You know, why are you spending $50 to replace the petcock when it works fine? Well, I like hearing the petcock click. So, you know, shut up about it. But um, my, the whole overriding thought there is this is, it's a hobby for a lot of us, not an investment. So I'm not buying parts and doing things on the motorcycle because I'm necessarily wanting to flip it or I'm concerned about the the PL sheet uh, and what that's going to look like in 10 years. I'm doing it because I like doing the work. I like the satisfaction of uh, repairing it and bringing it back uh, into a good state of mechanical readiness and, and safetiness. And it's, a, and it's a fun pastime. And if you've got the money to do it, don't fret. Uh, that's kind of been my philosophy. What are your thoughts on that just for the hobbyist? I, I agree with you hundred percent. You know, it, 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 if it's not your motivation to like flip it, like you say, or something like that, then, you know, it, it, half of the fun is, is, uh, kind of tweaking on it. Like one thing I, I've, I've got a 66 bug. So there, there I can kind of make an analogy to, and put myself into the, the yeah. customer, uh, yep. perspective. You know, and I, I've, I'm always like buying little little things. It works fine. I mean, I it, everybody thinks it's a cool bug, but you know, it could. There's little things that I can do to make it even nicer. Is it going to make it make it more valuable? I hear again. I want it to be like absolutely original condition. You know, and not it doesn't even have a radio. It never did, for example. Um, but um, yeah, there's. It's not crazy at all. I, at least, uh, well, maybe we're both crazy. Right? <laughs> I, I really agree with you. And, uh, you, you, you know, half the fun is just making little tweaks and it makes, makes you feel good. And if, if, if you could afford it and it makes you happy, then what's the downside? I agree. There was a, a Bo Diddley song, I think, uh, that summed it up really well. And it was called, If It Feels Good, Do It. And so, That's I it. mean, you can apply that with caution to a lot of things in life. Um, but, totally. uh, but I think, uh, when you're restoring a motorcycle uh, you bought a used bike and you're going through it, 
if it's something you want to do because you enjoy it, let's just say, William, you and I have pre-approved all purchases and new parts for anybody who wants to buy them, right? You know, that's, that, that's, that's true. It, <laughs> it, it has to be fun. It, it, has, right? it has to be, you know, it, it, that's why we do it. We're not, you know, if you're, in, if you're playing with their heads, thinking that you're going to make money or anything like that, just forget about it. You know, if it's, it's, it's the other way around. It's just, it's, it's a, it's gotta be a labor of love and you just got to enjoy it. And that's really what, what it's, a, what it's all about. I think. Thanks again to William Edward and all the crew at Boxer two valve. William is a true enthusiast and a wonderful retailer. We're proud to have on board with us. Now back to our conversation with Pokey Parmage. Yeah. Uh, all right. So here's, I want to, you've got, a uh, you sent me a website, uh, where you've got, uh, some musings of, uh, wonderful tales and stories, uh, motorcycle related through all your years. And one of them that I want to discuss here was, so through your course of working there, uh, it was decided you had to go rightfully so to BMW service school, but, uh, there was one important stipulation there that I guess really made for a memorable tale here. So tell me about that. Yeah, that was in 1972. Okay. Um, I, I was, see, we sold so many bikes that, um, you know, we would get trips to Europe and, and stuff like that. But this, Philip wanted real badly to say that I was a service school trained, um, so he he said that if I wanted to go to service school that year, I had to ride a motorcycle there, and he would supply me with a uh, the the shop demonstrator, which was a uh, a seventy two R seventy five slash five, and uh, with with Craven saddlebags and a small windshield, and he said you you need to ride that all the way across to Willowdale, uh, Ontario, which is on the other end yeah. of uh, of of uh, Canada. Yeah, exactly. So that's what I did. And it was a bit of a harrowing trip. (laughs) (laughs) The morning that I left, it was pouring rain, which is not unusual for the area. But in 1972, making, making, I think at that point I was making a dollar and 90 an hour. um, I was, I couldn't afford to buy proper rain gear. So I had the uh, usual stuff you buy from, the Army and Navy store, <laughs> yeah. and uh, I I took a pair of gloves and sprayed them heavily with uh, Scotch with Scotch Guard, which didn't do a thing. I was going to say, yeah. Uh, so I was going across. Uh, I left that morning. It was pouring rain, and by the time I got to, uh, he wanted me to take the southern route, so that would be uh, taking going across on I eighty. So I would go down I five cross the border and then pick up pick up I eighty from there. And by the time I got to the border, which was I think five miles or something like that, everything was wet. I was wet, I was cold, but I just kept going. And uh I can tell you that on that trip it was so cold that uh at one at one point uh just outside of Chicago um, I, I was going to stop for gas. It was blizzarding. Uh, one of the uh, <laughs> bank flashing lights said minus one. Oh, good grief. And uh, uh, my hands were frozen to the handlebars. 
my feet were frozen to the foot pegs. Um, I was following these tracks in the in the road oh, left by, in the snow, left by uh, big trucks. And I saw an exit sign, and I saw a gas station sign in the distance. So I went ahead and took the exit. And when I got to the gas station, um, I slid past the pumps and <laughs> fell over because I couldn't. I could not take my feet off of the foot pegs; they were frozen there. Yeah, yeah, I get it. So yeah, like the spray and the s- snow and water and sleet or whatever, basically accumulated on your foot to the uh, pedal and the and the foot peg. Right, right. Because they were grief. spraying the roads with salt, yeah. which created kind of a, a, a slush, and that slush collected uh, on the on the bottom of the bike, and um, I, I couldn't move. <laughs> so the guy came running out of the uh, service station, uh, grabbed a hold of me, and, <laughs> and at that point the bike had stalled. So uh, he was trying to lift me off of the bike, and I pointed out that I couldn't move my feet, and he kind of broke my feet free, and uh, I was able to stand up, and we both stood the bike up, and I was able to shut off the ignition. And um, he offered that I could take the bike into into the uh, repair area because there wasn't any mechanics in at that time. And so I left it in there, and uh, it thawed out in there, made a nice big puddle. But uh, I went over to the Howard Johnson's that was across the parking lot. Yeah. Um, and you can imagine the way I looked. I mean, covered with salt. Uh, sopping wet, um, looking terrible, and I went up and tried to rent a room, and the people there just didn't want anything to do with me. They didn't <laughs> rent me a room, nothing. Good grief! So I, I basically slept on their couch uh, in the um, in the foyer because I wouldn't go away. <laughs> well, you thought they would give at least give in. So, all right. So this had to have been, uh, you know, if you're saying it was. Uh, negative uh, temperatures. I mean, so you left um, in, in the, this must have been in the middle of winter sometime. I mean. Yeah, I'm, I'm afraid I didn't keep track of what month it was, but uh, everybody was saying that spring is coming. <laughs> oh, good Lord. Wow. And so, I, so the, let me just ask then. So uh, the pulling into the gas station, uh, was that the only time you had dropped uh, or the bike fell over up to that point? That's pretty amazing, uh, if so. Yeah. Yes, that's uh, through all the ice and snow I went through on that whole trip. That was the only time the bike heaved over. Wow. That's, that's, I, that's hard to believe. Wow. That's amazing. So, okay, you make it to Chicago. Uh, you thaw out in spite of Howard Johnson's... Uh, in hospitality, being inhospitable, uh, and I guess you probably never did. You ever go back to Howard Johnson's after that? That begs the question. Never did. Yeah, never did. I, don't, I don't blame you. Uh, so eventually, you did make it in one piece uh, to your final destination. Yes, yes, and along the way, I should add that um, the weather was so 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 cold at the time that um it was probably the night after or the night after that that the motel that i stopped in um to spend the night i was actually peeling uh, skin off my hands and my feet oh lord from the frostbite yeah yeah wow wow well i mean, it's fortunate you didn't suffer any uh you know long-lasting injuries or anything from that you know lose a toe or a finger or something 
I didn't didn't lose any parts, but boy, as I've gotten older, they have given me a world of trouble. I can imagine. <laughs> so, did you ever call at that at any point in the trip, uh, either when you arrived or during it? Did you ever call Philip back and say, you know, why the hell did you make me do this? And I have to imagine, in some sadistic way, he probably you know thought you needed to. It, you, you mentioned his world tours on his bike. He probably thought. You needed to do this to, to earn your stripes, so to speak. Is that right? Oh yeah. Yeah. And, and when I did when I did call, um, his attitude was kind of oh buck up. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I can imagine, right? Yeah, I'm not surprised. At all right, so thankfully you made it uh, uh, to your final destination. I I can imagine then the the warmth uh, and. Uh, comfortable confines uh, of a classroom or wherever the service school was, was a, a welcome respite for getting off the bike. Oh, for sure. Yes. Um, that was, that was uh, the fellow who was teaching the course. His name was Tony DeVera. Um, and uh, I spent, I spent time, spare time going to places like McBride's in Toronto and, and that sort of thing. Cause uh, Philip knew Percy McBride and uh, so I would go down there and, and chum around with some of the mechanics that were also uh, going to the service school. So that yeah, it was it was nice at that point. Yeah, um, things were nice and warm, but I was not looking forward to riding back. <laughs> I can imagine. Yeah, that had to have been in the back of your mind the whole time. We'll get before oh, we yeah. give me before we get to the maybe the return port of, part of the trip. Just give me a, a little overview and your impressions of uh, of actually attending. Uh, the service school, sort of how long was it, what kind of stuff did they cover, and uh, what, if anything, uh, practically speaking, has, has stayed with you uh, from that uh, training in that time? Well, to be quite honest, um, the, the service school didn't really do much for me. Yeah. Because at that, at that point, I had already um, – been so immersed and and so uh, mixed up with all of the things that BMW had that I'm afraid I pretty much knew what what the teacher knew. So uh, you know I didn't get much out of it. I I did uh, get uh, some notes about the electrics and and that sort of thing. You know wrote that sort of thing down, and uh, I did uh, refer back to it from time to time. But really there. Uh, the, the biggest reason that I went to that was so that Philip could be able to say, yes, our, our mechanic is uh, certified by BMW, and here's his, here's his uh, special certificate that he got from that. Well, I, you know, yeah. that, that's legitimate. I can understand that. I mean, as a customer, uh, I, I, would, I think I would feel some comfort in knowing that uh, you had a certified, you know, trained BMW mechanic on staff. Um, there's something to be said for that. Did, um, uh, so subsequently was, I mean, was this a one-time, uh, trip for you? Were there additional trips to service school to stay certified or how did that eventually manifest itself, uh, years down the road at, if at all? We have to remember that, um, most of our customers were, um, over, you know, 40 or over. Mm -hmm. I'm not saying all of them, but most of them. So to stand there and be pointed at this, at the time, 17-year-old kid um, <laughs> doing the work on their bikes, you had to sh you had to prove to them somehow that you knew your stuff. Yeah. 
So these uh, to to show that I'd been to service school is was kind of the way to do it. Yeah. Um, and then there was uh, uh, some customers that I would they would walk in and I would try to help them for for writing up the the service materials and, and stuff, and they wouldn't even talk to me. Hmm. <laughs> wow. We had to have had to have had to bring Philip out, and Philip would tell them straight, "You need to talk to this person." And um, yeah, one of them uh, I better not use the name, but uh, one of them refused to even give me his first name. Good grief. Was, uh, yeah, he just, just told me the letters of his first and middle name and told me the last name. <laughs> so <laughs> he didn't want to talk to me at all. <laughs> but yeah, the, the, the next service school I went to was uh, a ways down the road. It was in 1974. And that one, um, because of our sales, uh, we were given, from time to time, we were given uh, free trips to Europe. Uh, now these trips weren't weren't all these lavish things that you might you might expect. It's basically you got uh, free airfare and everything else you had to take care of. So in this particular one, Philip had gone to Europe, I guess three or four times by that by that time. Uh, so this time he decided he wanted to send me to service school in in Munich. So in 1974, I, I went to service school in Munich, staying at the Olympic Park Hotel. And, um, yeah, I went to the service school. The service school there, the service school in Toronto was one day. The service school in um, in Munich was, if I'm remembering right, it was like three days. And so it was quite a bit more um, advanced. Uh, dealing with also the new systems of the Slash 6 series. Yeah, right. But the funny thing about the service school in Munich, I, I was all prepared for, you know, all this, all this proper stuff. Well, the motorcycle part got the remnants of, of whatever the car dealership, the car, car section didn't want. So we didn't have complete tools. Um, and, and, of course, things were kind of a mess and because the – car people would come in, take whatever they wanted, and then leave. So <laughs> it was it was weird. And when I was walking around on break, I was walking down some of the hallways, and um, I went into an area where the, the car people were being trained. And they had these tool boards that were perfect, <laughs> tools all, all shiny and clean, clean benches, and everybody was dressed the same. And the uh, guy teaching the class said, basically came up to me and in German asked me what the hell I was doing there. <laughs> and I said, well, I'm, I'm with the motorcycle thing. And he said, well, then you better get back over there. Oh, good grief. You know, let me interrupt, so, and, yeah. say, let me interrupt and say that really speaks to uh, what, what we know about, or at least let me rephrase it this way, what I know about uh, this, the sort of status uh, of the motorcycle division at that time in the uh, early uh, to mid seventies, there you know right before or right around the time the slash or the R90s was released, it was struggling. Uh, it was an afterthought, uh, is generally what is told about uh, the motorcycle division at that time, uh, and with not a lot of oversight. So hearing your story about that really confirms. Uh, firsthand, you know, what uh, what a lot of us have known uh, history-wise. 
Oh yeah, yeah. It's it's not a it's not a part of the history that BMW likes to share, but it was definitely there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I, I have to ask you. You mentioned the the Olympic Park Hotel. So <clears throat> you were there just a couple years after the hostage incident that took place in Munich. Were you staying in the actual hotel where uh, all that went down? Oh yeah. Wow. Yeah, I, I I couldn't I don't remember what floor it was or, mm-hmm. or anything or, or how it all came about. But yes, I was I was staying in the same portion, Whoop. and the security at that point was quite uh, quite stout. Yeah, I, I imagine. Yeah, I imagine the significance uh, of that wasn't lost on you at the time. No. Wow. As soon as as soon as you walk in the door, somebody was on you. Yeah. You know what are you doing here? Uh, where is your room? What is your room number? Mm. What is your name? You know? <laughs> and actually, um, at one point, I'd come I'd come back. I was up in my room. I'd just taken a shower, and I was getting ready for bed. Somebody came in my front door, and I just happened to have a knife with me, and I, I pulled it out, and I was, <laughs> I was, you know, what are you doing here? Yeah. And, and the guy said, you need to lock your door better. Duly noted, sir. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Fair enough. Well, we're going to have to leave it there for this episode. More from Pokey next time when we discuss his visiting the BMW factory and tech school in Munich in the mid-1970s. A reminder, you can reach us by email with your comments, pictures, survivor bike stories, or Whatever else you'd like to share, drop us a line, airheads247 at hotmail.com. The Airheads 247 podcast is distributed and produced by From Off Productions. Our producer engineer is Jeff Glover. I'm Darren Dorton. Look forward to catching up with you next time. Mm-hmm.